0: Good morning, church. Today's reading is from Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision?" Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of our
1: Morning, everybody. Uh, My name is Mark. I serve as the adult ministries pastor, but lately you may know me as the letter guy. (laughs) You're the letter guy. Yeah, I've seen you now three, four weeks in a row, and now you're thinking Romans is a really long letter. How many times do we have to watch you up there? I can't tell you. But I can tell you that at some point, perhaps something else will be shown in its place. But it is great to be with you this morning. I'm excited to uh, take this next section of Romans with you uh, this morning. Now, there is a few things that all of us have in common. In fact, we're probably more alike than we want to admit at times. Uh, It's really easy to feel as though you are so unique and so special, or maybe it's what you hope is true of you that you never really want to be lumped into a larger category. Another way of saying this is that all of us, each and every one of us, we want to be known for something, or maybe a couple somethings. Uh, There is a list of adjectives or statements that are in your head that you hope people think of when they think of you. Uh, Maybe you want to be known as someone who's artistic, Or creative. Uh, Maybe you like it when people notice that you are a really good cook and they always compliment you on the food that you make. Uh, Maybe you want to be known as someone who's well put together, you're attractive, Uh, God has blessed you with great bone structure and really good skin, and you want people to kind of recognize that, and maybe as you achieve age you do whatever you can to make sure that stays the same. Or it could be other things that maybe aren't as superficial. Maybe you like to be known as someone who gives or who serves. Anytime there's a chance to serve here at Desert Breeze, you jump on it. See, these things in and of themselves, they aren't really bad things, but they're often the the ideas we have inside of us that we really want people to know us for. A little transparency for you this morning, just to show that that I feel this because this is true of me as well. Uh, Growing up, I wanted to be known for three things. The first one, Please hold your laughter to as little as possible when I share this with you. But the first thing that I wanted to be known for from about first and second grade on is I wanted to be an athlete. And then something, ha- thank you for not laughing. <laughs> then something happened to me, well actually something didn't happen to me all through middle school. I didn't grow. I quit growing. Uh, the best way to describe this is to, de- to explain to you the group of class pictures that I experienced through middle school. I went to a very small uh, Christian school, and uh, so our classes were small enough that you could still do a whole class picture and we could fit in the picture. Sixth grade, back row with all the dudes. Kind of at the end of the row, so you kind of taper down, but still, back row with the fellas. Seventh grade, middle row, mixture of girls and boys who hadn't had their growth spurt yet. Eighth grade, front row, holding the sign. <laughs> this is the definition of you are really not important. You are, oh, thank you. I got over it, but it's nice that you care. Um, that person's essentially, look, we don't even want your whole body in the picture, we just need a floating head and two hands. That's how minuscule you are. So I quickly figured out athlete was not what I was going to be known for. Still loved sports, played sports, watched sports, but no one looks at me and goes, there goes an athlete. So I dumped that one. Second one, I wanted to be known as someone who was funny. I grew up in a family that really enjoyed humor. I think my dad was one of the funniest men I've ever been around. He had this great sense of humor. Uh, our dinner tables at night were just filled with laughter. One of my favorite memories growing up was whenever my mom would bake, or not make, but make a salad for dinner, along with everything else we were eating, if there was a salad placed on the table, it was a race between mostly my dad, my sister, and I to be the first one to say, let us pray. So, we thought we were funny, no one else really did. But I found humor to be a great way to get to know people. It was fun to make people laugh. And so, still to this day, it's, like it's, it's nice to be known as someone who's funny, and then at times, like I'm the only one who thinks I'm funny, and that's okay. The third one, and this is the one that has lasted the longest in my life, is I wanted to be known as being someone who is intelligent. I wanted to be smart. I found myself doing well in school in the early years and enjoyed the praise that that received from people. Parents, teachers, other adults, why can't you be more like that guy? And then I found that as I went through my education and I went to a Christian school and then I went to a Christian college and they eventually even went to seminary, I found that being spiritually smart was really wanted what I wanted to be known for. That was my deepest core desire. That was my identity. I want to have all of the spiritual answers. And so I began to study and study and study. I got into this field of uh, theology called apologetics, which is essentially, how do you defend your faith? I was the guy who looked forward to when other people would come knocking on my door from other religions. I couldn't wait for them to show up. I'm like, oh, here we go. I have got all the answers to everything you're gonna possibly throw my way. And then I was disappointed when they wouldn't spend time and listen. They often would leave rather quickly. Uh, In college, my friends and I, we would go and we would try to evangelize on street corners near other colleges, and we never could get anyone to talk to us, not for longer than 30, 45 seconds. And for the longest time, we couldn't figure out why. Years later, I realized, it's because we had all the answers, but we were jerks. We flaunted our intellectual superiority on people in a way that really was not very attractive. And it was finally through some maturity on my part and other people in my life who poured into me in a very positive way, that I realized what I was struggling from in this specific area of my life was that I had a severe case of the greater thans. Familiar with this symbol? Now, some of you are having some major flashbacks (laughs) to math, and and you're, you're thinking to yourself, I thought Desert Breeze was a safe place. I was told there would be no math today, what's happening here? Well, we're just going to talk about the symbol, there will be no algebra before you walk out the door. But this, this symbol re- requires us to understand that whatever is to the bigger alligator mouth side of the symbol, this is the greater than. And so I had a severe case of the greater thans. I had a case of I wanted to be greater than, I wanted to be more important than anyone else who I came in contact with in the area of spiritual intellect. Other areas, I was fine if someone was better than me. But in this area, I wanted to be on this side of the symbol. And I would compare myself to people. I would have a conversation. Yep, I'm greater than you. Yep, greater than, yep, wait a second. I found someone who I'm less than. Well, this can't stay, so I either need to study harder or find an area where they're not as intelligent and really, really poke at that until eventually the symbol flips back over in my direction. And this idea of greater than, of having something about you, your identity, what you're known for as being the thing that drives you is really at the heart of this section of Romans we're going to see this morning. This case of greater than will be at the undercurrent of everything we read and talk about in Romans 2 and Romans 3 this morning. So let's jump into it. Uh, This is what I realized is that I suffer from a severe case of the greater thans, and we're going to see that here in this section. So here's the the setup for our morning together. Uh, We all want to be known for something. It's how we separate and often elevate ourselves above the crowd. It's the best way for you to to distinguish yourself. A group within the Roman house churches that we're going to reintroduce ourselves to, uh, Pastor Ray began talking about them last week, and we'll come back to them this week. A group within the Roman house churches believed that their something, their greater than, was a superior religious status. They felt more religious than others within the group. And so, as we're going to see in the second half of Romans and the first part of Romans 2 and the first part of Romans 3, we're going to see that Paul confronts these folks, the religious, and he dismantles their belief that they are greater than. Now, in case this is your first week with us in this Romans series that we began about three or four weeks ago, or you've been in and out, or you're still at the place where you're thinking, I still am trying to grasp what this letter is is all about. Let's do a quick flyover of some of the things that we've learned so far in our study of Romans, and that will help us, I think, better understand what we're going to look at today. So, a couple comments for you, and these are also in your notes if you're following along in your bulletin. Uh, First of all, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's the author of this letter. What's interesting about Romans is that he has yet to visit Rome. This is one of the rare occasions where Paul is writing to a group of people in which he does not have a, a a familiar ideology with them. He has never been there. Most of the places he writes to are churches he started himself, and yet in this church he's yet to be to Rome, so they're strangers to him in many respects. He writes a letter, and then something else that's helpful is to realize that he writes to the group of house churches that exist in the city of Rome. In many ways, we want to make sure that we remind ourselves that there isn't like one large church in Rome that Paul is writing to. There isn't a First Baptist of Rome. There isn't a Roman breeze community church (laughs) that exists yet. Uh, But instead, it's little pockets, sometimes as small as six, maybe if someone had a larger house and was more wealthy, perhaps they could pack in 30, 40, 50 people. But the Christians in Rome met in little groups. It would be very similar to what we think of as groups today, like a life group or a men's group or a woman's group or a support group. That was their, quote-unquote, church. Rarely did they all get together in one location. There was no place really to do that unless they left the city. So, Paul is writing not to a church in Rome, but all the little pockets of churches that exist, and that will help us understand perhaps what he says later on in this chapter. So, the Roman house churches, here's something else that's helpful for us, they were comprised of, as you could probably well imagine at this time period, you have Christians who were Jewish and Christians who were Gentile. What also is helpful to understand historically is that a few years before Paul wrote the churches of Rome, Uh, the emperor at the time, Emperor Claudius, he had expelled all Jews from the city. He had forced them to leave for about a five-year period. And now the Jews were allowed to move back in. And as they did, the Jewish Christians encountered churches that had been completely Gentile for five years. And there was some friction there. There was some tension there. Uh, There was racial tension. There was spiritual tension. And Paul, really, in this letter, is addressing the tension and the division that exists in these house churches. Imagine a church that has divisions. Imagine a church that has arguments and frustrations. Well, and I know, we can't understand it here, but imagine other churches that have this problem, right? Well, as we saw over the last couple of weeks, Paul begins his letter in what we have as our first three chapters. Paul is detailing a description of of the fact that sin reigns in all of us, that all of us, whether we begin from a very irreligious background or a religious background, all of us need the gospel. And it's gonna culminate in a verse that we'll look at next week with Pastor Ray, that a verse probably most of you are familiar with, Romans 3.23, where Paul finally ends this conversation with that very famous phrase, for all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. Now, the section we're going to look at this morning, Paul is zeroing in on a specific group of people that seem to be causing most of the problem within the Roman house churches. After Paul detailed the fact that those who are irreligious, who are immoral, how much they need the gospel, and that was the second half of chapter 1, Paul has turned his attention to chapter 2 to those who feel they have a religious background and yet even though they may be more spiritual than the group from chapter one, they still need the gospel as much as anyone else. And a general description of religious people, Paul has now really honed in, and he's talking about one specific group within the Roman house churches. And that is a group that has taken the concepts, the laws, and the rituals of Old Testament Judaism And they have laid that on top of the gospel and have proclaimed that you must do this first. You aren't really a Jesus follower unless you follow the rituals and the law and the system that we've set up through the Old Testament under the law of Moses. Now, we're not really sure. Uh, Theologians are kind of back and forth on, is Paul specifically talking to Jewish Christians in the Roman house churches? or Gentiles who have kind of adopted this mentality that nope, we need to become Jewish. Either way, the issue is something has been laid on top of the gospel as a precursor. Something must be done first before you really can be at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. And as we're going to see, Paul spends a great deal of ink letting these folks know that it does not matter your religious background. You need Jesus. You desperately need Jesus. A couple more uh, helpful hints, and then we'll jump into the text um, because we're thinking the whole time about what it means to be greater than. So, first of all, keep in mind whenever you read one of Paul's New Testament letters that in many ways you and I are reading somebody else's mail. (laughs) We weren't the original recipients. We really only have one half of the conversation. We don't know for sure, there's some historical evidence, and there's some guesswork here, but what's really happening in the Roman house churches we can only put together by reading what Paul writes to them. But we're reading somebody else's mail, and so we have to really work hard to try and adopt a mindset of what it would be like to be a Christian in the first century in the city of Rome with what we do know about those house churches to make any kind of personal application for ourselves. Uh, I can't just pull stuff out and make it say something unless I really try to understand who is Paul writing to, what is he writing about, and why is he writing it. So, we'll keep that in mind as we go through. The other thing we've got to keep in mind is Paul is, as they say back east, he's wicked smart. <laughs> Paul has an Ivy League intellect that rivals hardly anyone else on the planet at this time. Uh, and he's known for his very in-depth very deep philosophical arguments that he lays out in the letters that he writes. Uh, I'm, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, and when I tell you this, you'll think this is an odd passage for it to be favorite for you, but I love it because of the reality in it. Uh, the Apostle Peter is writing in his second letter, and at the end of his second letter, he makes a statement about Paul that I think all of us can relate with. Uh, It's 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. You can turn to it if you want. I'll just read it for us. Listen to what Peter says here. This is so great. He says, "...and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you." Okay, so Peter is writing to some of the same people that Paul has written to at some point. "...according to the wisdom given to him." Here it is. "...speaking of these things in all of his letters." Verse 16, some things in these letters are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> A little louder for the people in the back. Isn't it nice that one of the disciples, one of the inner three disciples, one of the closest men to walk with Jesus, says to his readers, you really should read Paul's stuff. For me, it's like, woo-hoo. but it's really good. You should read it. Isn't it nice to know that when, as we read, because this is one of the hardest sections in the book of Romans to understand from our perspective. Romans is one of Paul's deeper books, and it is a section that we're in today that is one of his harder sections. So, isn't it nice that Peter also says, this stuff is, I'm just a fisherman. (laughs) I have no idea. It's good. You should read it and maybe even tell me what it means. One last comment, and then we'll jump into the text. As I just mentioned, this, this is a hard, hard section to understand. Uh, John did a great job reading it for us, but you may, if you were honest, as John read the ha- second half of chapter 2, said, wow, that's beautiful. No clue what he's talking about. It's a hard section, all right? This is not puppies and rainbows and ice cream. This is really, really hard stuff. And as we get into the hardest section of the letter of Romans, let the record show that Pastor Ray is nowhere to be seen. <laughs> let's give it to the new guy, okay? So, hope Pastor Ray's enjoying the weekend off. He'll be back next week. But in the meantime, let's, let's just sludge through it together, all right? Here we go. So, jump into chapter 2. We're going to pick it up at verse 17. Uh, this chapter, chapter 2. This chapter is for the people who think chapter 1 was about someone else. And Paul begins chapter 2 by saying, that chapter's about you too. The things that we listed in chapter 1 that show the downward spiral of humanity, they're true of you as well. And so, I titled this next section uh, the second half of chapter 2. What we're really looking at here is, looking at here is Paul's indictment on the religious. Paul is going to list four areas in which these religious individuals who are shoving Judaism on the rest of the Gentile Christians, they're guilty of four things that really they shouldn't be doing. Four areas where Paul says, you need to fix this. In the first two verses of our section today, verses 17 and 18, what we see here is Paul indicts them because they are proud of their position. They're proud of their position. Oftentimes, when someone finds themselves thinking that they are a greater-than-individual when it comes to spirituality, what they're quick to do is is to recite their resume any chance they get. Because if I can make sure that you know what I know, and I list my credentials for you, that gives me a feeling of spiritual superiority. Here's how Paul says it, but if you call yourself a Jew, and here we go, rely on the law, boast in God, know His will, approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law. All of those details, Paul is recognizing that these are the kinds of things that a religious greater than type person uses to communicate to people, this is how I'm better. What might this look like today? Uh, Again, not to single out anyone in this room, but there are other people out there who will often use their spiritual credentials as a way to show superiority over someone. Uh, I once knew a gentleman in my younger years who was very proud of the fact that he had read through the Bible in a year for about 40 or 50 years straight. And anytime you had a conversation with him, he would somehow weave that into the conversation. You know, I have read through the Bible every year in a year for like 52 years now. And as a high school student my first thought was are you sure because you're a cranky old man <laughs> and you don't really show the love of Jesus very often uh, other people that may be you know oh I'm quick to tell you the number of times I've evangelized and the number of people I've evangelized or the number of small groups I've led or the fact that I use the correct Bible translation or that I go to this denomination of a church or maybe even you're proud of the fact that you go to a non-denominational church because that's more intellectually superior. Perhaps you think that, well, the fact that I, uh, I have perfect church attendance, which most of us think, stay home when you're sick, please. You don't need to be here every single week. We have an online. It's happening right now. Uh, but for, I remember as a kid, people would give out little stars and trinkets to kids who had perfect church attendance throughout the year. And I remember thinking, well, I, I just don't know if I can do that. But that's a badge of honor for some people. I have vast knowledge of Bible trivia. Um, Some people would even maybe use something like the style of music they like or their political affiliations. None of these things are inherently wrong. In fact, we all should have some thoughts and feelings about those, but when they are used as a way to demonstrate spiritual superiority, see, that's what Paul's getting at. The greater thans use their resume. They focus all their energy on letting everyone know, this is what is true of me. This is how I am spiritually superior to you. Uh, Tim Keller actually said this once in one of his talks. He said, it is possible to trust in Christianity rather than in Christ. The institution of Christianity is what you hold up and what you adhere your identity to rather than the person of Jesus. It's like, what's true of you? What's true of me is that I'm a follower of Jesus, a sinner saved by grace. Everything else is stuff I'm accumulated over time, but I don't wanna lead with that. I wanna lead with Jesus. So that's the first thing that Paul says about them. In the next couple of verses, verses 19 and 20, here's the second indictment Paul has against these religious greater thans, is they're very judgmental of outsiders. They're very judgmental of outsiders. As you read verses 19 and 20, keep this in mind, a lot of people who have done a great deal of research in this this passage, they really sense that maybe Paul is is being a little bit sarcastic here. He's not saying that this is something that's true of these folks, but it's the kinds of things that they say about themselves. So look at uh, verses 19 and 20. And if you are sure, like are you really sure, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, sounds like something a religious person would say about themselves, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul sees these things, again, nothing inherently wrong in them, but they're being used by the religious moral greater thans as a way to criticize and patronize those who they feel they are superior to. So they're quick to tell you how foolish you are and instruct you in it. They're quick to tell you how much you have sinned. Religious, moral, greater-thans often find themselves like the self-appointed sin police, who make sure they go around and let you know exactly where it is that you're falling short. For these folks, the theological correctness in their life is more important than actually loving their neighbor or following the principles that the Bible lays out for them. They're not really interested in accountability, they're interested in superiority. And so Paul calls them out on that. Isn't this fun? This is great stuff, yeah. It's great. Keep going, Paul. Drive the knife in a little harder. Here we go. Third area in which Paul indicts them is in verses 21 through 24, and this is something that is often said of people who have this issue of being religiously superior, is they're very hypocritical. They're hypocritical in their actions. They hide behind other people's sin to appear righteous. And Paul really goes after them here in this section. You say you teach others, do you teach yourself? You tell people to not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You tell people to abhor idols, but don't you yourself rob temples? Which would be a huge statement to say to someone who thinks that Old Testament Judaism is very, very important to claim that perhaps they are something who is, who is robbing from the temple and creating idols for themselves out of something else. Wow, that would really hit to the core of them. you preach preaching and stealing, do you steal? Paul is really letting them know that they have allowed their religion to replace their obedience. That they have found big sins to thrust upon those who are outside of their little community and they highlight those big sins while privately hiding their what they think of as lesser sins or sins that they don't want anyone to know about. Greater thans will place standards on people that they themselves can't keep and then really drive home how bad those folks are for not keeping the standards that have been placed in front of them. Alright, one last little area at the end of chapter 2. The last thing that Paul says about these greater-thans, these religious individuals, is that they are relying 100 percent on external things. They are relying on external rituals, law-keeping, policies that have been introduced throughout time by Jewish religious leaders, and they rely on those as their mark of salvation, rather than the relationship they should be having with Jesus Christ. Following Jesus is more about a relationship than following a bunch of rules. In the Old Testament, two things were given to the nation of Israel that have now become such symbols of priority for the people in the Roman house churches that Paul says, you've taken them and obliterated their true meaning. When you read through this section, and it gets a little confusing because there's a lot of talk about the law and a lot of talk about circumcision. And let me just give you a little hint as to what Paul is driving at when he mentions those two concepts over and over again. When Paul's talking about the law, and I think we're all pretty familiar with what that is, that's the 613 precepts that were the standard for the people of God. It is what they were supposed to try and adhere to to demonstrate that they were unique and separate from the rest of the nations around them, and trying to obtain a lifestyle that was pleasing to God. And yet we all know that no one could keep the law perfectly. And yet religious people will use something like the law as a pattern to say, "This is what you must do." Circumcision, first given to Abraham to designate him as the father of the great nation of Israel, and for every succeeding generation after that, was the physical sign that you belonged to God. And while these two things were vastly important to how God worked through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, these religious greater thans in the Roman house churches have turned them into something that is not what they were meant to be. And the rules and the rituals far exceeded the relationship that one was supposed to have with Jesus, their Savior. So, to summarize this section, and you, you can write this in at the bottom of your notes. This just a little statement that kind of summarizes uh, this whole section of chapter 2. Here's Paul's conclusion after walking through all of these situations that he knows about in the Roman house churches. Paul says this, religion might change behavior, but it doesn't change the heart. Religion might change behavior but it doesn't change the heart. I can modify your behavior by giving you a list of rules and rituals for you to follow. And if you follow them externally, you look like a very spiritual person. And yet your heart could be completely unchanged. Hopefully those of us in the room today know that it is the fact that Jesus changed our hearts that is the difference in our lives. Not the ability to follow some preset standard or set of laws that are placed in front of us. Now, we didn't take the time to read chapter three this morning because this is even a deeper set of insider lingo that is really hard to understand. So I thought I would just summarize it for you. I've given you some of the info in the bulletin in your notes if you wanna look that over or even if you're online, you can check that out. Let me just summarize this section and then we'll, we'll drive it home here at the end. One of the things that Paul loves to do, one of his favorite literary devices, is he likes to create an imaginary objector and have an argument with them. Now, especially because he's never been to Rome, so he can't really have the conversation in person, Paul, in his deep intellect, says, I know what I'll do. I will create an individual who is probably asking the questions that the Roman house church individuals are asking, and I'll just go ahead and answer them. So, Paul creates a one-on-one conversation in chapter 3 at the beginning, and he anticipates and then answers their questions. So, here's the the part of chapter 3 that we want to focus on for just a moment. Paul's response to the religious is this, having once lived a religious-centered life himself, Paul says, oh, I know what they're going to ask me. I know what I would ask if I just heard and read chapter 2. So, he anticipates the kinds of questions they would ask, and then he answers them. He, he calls them on what he thinks probably they would ask, and then he responds and retaliates. And I've often wondered, why does Paul do this? Because there are a lot of people who read those first nine verses of chapter 3 and first eight chap- verses of chapter 3 and say, Paul has kind of lost the plot here for a moment. Like, he's gotten so deep into this conversation that no one else is really aware of what's going on. He's having the conversation just with himself. And yet, when you stop and think about Paul's life prior to coming to Jesus, it's amazingly obvious why he's doing this. Why does Paul spend about 12 verses on the irreligious people of the world and a chapter and a half on the religious people of the world? Because Paul himself is a recovering religious moralist. Paul's a recovering greater than. Because Paul, before he found Jesus, was a super Pharisee. He was one of the greatest intellectual minds within the Jewish religious system at the time. And Paul tells us in Galatians 1 that after he found Jesus on the road to Damascus, he left and went into Arabia, into the desert, for three years before he returns and then begins to interact with disciples and begin his ministry. And I've often wondered if those three years were Paul's desert seminary experience, where here's some language we use even today. I wonder if in those three years, Paul went out and he deconstructed his Judaism and reconstructed his new Christian faith. And the questions that Paul asks and answers in the beginning of chapter 3 may be some of the questions he asked himself as he spent three years contemplating what has just changed in my life. This Jesus I now serve is the Jesus I was just trying to destroy. That has to change a person, right? That has to do something within them. And so Paul, knowing what it's like to be a religious, moralist, greater than, goes even deeper and says, I will call you on what I bet you're going to ask me if I were standing in front of you. And I'll give you the answers right there on the spot. So, Paul's conclusion. Paul, a recovering greater than, says this. Everyone is equal in their need for Jesus and the gospel. Not greater than, equal. Not greater than, equal. To close our time this morning, I want to take us to a parable that Jesus tells because I think this parable may be in many ways the reasoning behind why Paul has spent so much time dealing with this topic as he has in the beginning part of Romans. It's in Luke chapter 18, if you want to turn there. Uh, I'll read it for us. Uh, It's a pretty famous parable. You may be well aware of it if you've been around church a lot in your life. And I'm going to read this parable to you in in maybe a different translation that you have in front of you. i want to read it out of the New English translation because there's a phrase that they translate based upon some information that they've received on how the Greek is Is put together. There's a phrase in this passage that I think completely exposes what Jesus is trying to teach here, and I think it's relevant for us as we bring this point home and wrap up these first three chapters of Romans and finish this area where Paul has been really letting us know that we're all equally in need of a savior. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's in Luke 18, starting in verse nine through through verse fourteen. Here's how it begins, Jesus also told this parable to some who were confident that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. That sounds like Paul's greater than group that he's dealing with in the Roman house churches. Verse 10, Jesus begins this parable, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, you and I need to pause for a moment and remind ourselves of something here. Because uh, if you've been around church at all, you've kind of been programmed that the Pharisees were the bad guys. Uh, in fact, if this was a melodrama, and Jesus is teaching, and he begins to say, and there was a Pharisee, we would all go, boo, I mean, we use Pharisee as, as a way to let people know that they are being too religious, that they've replaced their relationship with their religion. Don't be a Pharisee. Oh, he's being a Pharisee. That's very Pharisaic. Watch out for the Pharisees. Tch, Pharisee, we use it as negative. Remind yourself that in this first century, when Jesus is teaching in the area of Galilee and Judea, the Pharisee was the most respected, revered individual in the community. For the audience of Jesus' day, when he would say Pharisee, they'd be like, "Ooh!" Like a healthy respect, maybe some fear, uh, maybe upset if they called you on stuff. But they were the top of the social ladder in Jesus' day. And the tax collector, now that's the bottom. Many people in this time period would say there are sinners, there are prostitutes, there are Gentiles, and there are tax collectors. Because the tax collector was one of their own who extorted money from them for the invading Roman superpower, which is why Matthew as a disciple is so intriguing as a tax collector. So, here we go. We've got these two men. A Pharisee, the crowd goes, ho!" Oh, tax collector, boom. Can't wait till the Pharisee lets the tax collector know what's what. Verse 11, top of the social system, bottom of the social system. The Pharisee stood, and this is the phrase that in a translation, most translations it may say the Pharisee stood and prayed to himself, like prayed privately or quietly or prayed by himself. There's some really good arguments that based upon the Greek construction of things it may be better to read it as the Pharisee stood and prayed about himself. Because as you read his prayer, he begins with God and then God is nowhere else to be found the rest of the prayer. There's the title of God, and then, I thank you that I am not like other people. (laughs) We don't pray this way, but I think sometimes we think this way. I'm glad that I'm not like other people. And then he lists the kind of people that he's glad he's not like, extortionists, unrighteous people, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Can you imagine if you're, if you're part of a group this week, men's, women's, life group, study group, support group, and it's time for prayer and someone prays, Dear God, thank you for a good, healthy marriage, unlike Derek and Susie's. <laughs> Apologies to anyone named Derek and Susie, especially if you're a married couple named Derek and Susie. Just hypothetical statements. Or if someone prayed sometime some, some in your group this week, Father, you've just blessed me with incredible intellect and incredible knowledge Unlike Ray or Jace, again, fictitious names, (laughs) totally made up.
0: Can you imagine someone
1: praying that way? And yet, sometimes I wonder in our heads if that that rolls through it, but we know better than to pray that way. Uh, The Pharisee continues in verse 12, I fast twice a week. You know, the law only required you to fast one day a week, so the Pharisee is twice as good, lets everybody know, resume building. I give a tenth of everything I get. Verse 13, the tax collector, however, stood far off and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, sinner that I am. And the crowd, I would anticipate, it's like, huh? I don't understand this. And then Jesus closes with this statement, something that he says multiple times throughout the Gospels. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified, declared clean and right, purified, rather than the Pharisee. What, the Pharisee's the bad guy in this story? Yes, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, we all struggle with the need to validate ourselves to the world. Instead, we probably should be making much of Jesus. Paul has taken the resumes and the rituals used by the greater thans to create a feeling of superiority, and he's dismantled them, much like Jesus did in his parable, so that everyone is on the same level. In fact, it's often been said that the ground in front of the cross is completely flat. Meaning, we are all at the same place. We all come in the same spiritual condition before Jesus. And how good is it that His grace is bestowed to any of us? Whether we come from a very irreligious background or we come with already a great resume and a great set of spiritual tools, we all get that equal feeling before Jesus. Imagine what it would be like if those of us in this room lived in such a way that we didn't fall victim to this, but we embodied and championed and expelled to the world this, this. In our communities, in our homes, in our groups, in our church here, in our neighborhood, what if what we were known for was that we love God, and we love people, and it is equal to all. Wouldn't it be great if Christians weren't known as being judgmental, Pharisees, if someone knows the word, attempting to extort us of things, all they want is our money, all the negative things that people often throw at the direction of a church or Christian's. And if the way we lived was so powerful and so gospel-centered that people would maybe even say, I don't know if I believe what they believe, but boy, they sure do love us. Boy, they really embrace us in whatever condition we are in. And they love us the way Jesus loved. That is such a big challenge for me, because let's face it, some people are hard to love. And it's really, really easy having lived the life I've lived, to go, man, there's no doubt here with this one. This person, I don't even have to show the sign. Just five seconds of conversation, and I am greater than. But instead, I'm like, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you come from. This is what Jesus says. This is what Paul's been teaching. This is what I want to live. This is what I want to be known for. Let me pray with us to close our time. Father, thank you. What a powerful morning. Uh, thank you for Luke and the worship team and just pointing us to you, Jesus, through music and through worship. And thank you, Father, for this passage. It's hard. Uh, the Bible is not easy sometimes. Um, it's hard to hear, it's hard to understand. Um, but we thank you, Lord, that you, you give us uh, an ability to, to sift through language that is you know, 2,000 years old. And yet, we can see the human condition is the same. And we can see ourselves in this. We can see the need for us to be like you, Jesus, and understand that having an attitude of superiority, having a greater-than approach to life is so difficult for everyone around us. Help us, Father, uh, to know the truth, to love the truth, but also to... Spread your grace to everyone around us. That that would be the first thing people know about us, Jesus, is that we love you and we follow you. And all the other things can be talked about later. I thank you so much for this community, Father. Uh, What a beautiful group of people. Uh, Continue to help us to love and encourage each other throughout the days. We're so grateful for you, Jesus. Thank you. We make much of you. We pray in your name. Amen. 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 Well, thanks again for being here this morning. If you want prayer here at the end, if you'd like to come up and ask some questions, um, if you'd rather send questions every week, we do a little video, Luke and I, asking, answering questions that are asked of us. But if you want to come and get prayer with someone, I'll be up here. Some of the other leaders and pastors will be here as well. Have a great last weekend in January. Yes, doesn't today, I, today feels like January 74th. It's been forever. <laughs> Go have a great week. Love you.